You don't want a God to forget your sin. You want a God who banishes the thought of your sin. And that's what God tells us He does. Our passage this morning is the second half of verse 7. But to get there, we'll kind of work from verse 1 down to verse 7. Just a tad bit of review. I don't want to review everything from the beginning because then we'll be here for an hour in review time. But just a little bit of review is Paul is speaking to us in this extended section about God's work of salvation, the incredible blessing that is God's work of life in Christ. And he began by talking to us, if you will, of God's work before he created time, of God's purpose, of God's will, of God's plan before he created anything. And in the mind of God, we were his people. In the mind of God, he chose us as his people. And we, from the very first conception in God's mind, were united together with Christ. So God's work of choosing, God's work of adoption, all of that took place before God created anything. And that's where Paul begins. Then he moves from the focus on the work of the Father before the creation of time to the work of the Son in time. And so he moves now to focusing on what Jesus did in time in order to bring about what the Father purposed before time, which was our salvation, our life in Christ. So now we moved, last time we moved to the work of the Son, and we began with verse 7 in this way, in Him we have redemption through His blood. And we talked about this glorious truth of redemption. This is one of the, the most beautiful truths of the Christian life, and that is this truth that's wrapped up in this word redemption. What a beautiful word and what a beautiful concept, because it speaks to us of a condition, a very undesirable, miserable condition that we are redeemed out of by means of a ransom payment, a propitiation payment made by Jesus on the cross. We are redeemed in His blood. So on the cross, Jesus pays the propitiation price to appease the wrath of the Father, the rightful just wrath of the Father, and He redeems us out of that horrible condition of being enslaved to sin. So that was the redemption in His blood that we talked about last time. This time we're going to move on to the next phrase, which is we have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His glory. So that's going to be our focus this morning. We're going to move from talking about one of the most beautiful concepts in the Christian life to that concept which is even, if anything, more beautiful than the, than the truth and the reality of redemption, and that is the reality of forgiveness. There is no teaching of the New Testament that is more fundamental, more foundational, more basic, more ubiquitous than the truth that Jesus Christ did not die a martyr's death. Jesus Christ did not die to show us how much the Father loved us. Jesus Christ did not die as an example for us. Jesus Christ did not die as the result of a long string of unfortunate events. Jesus Christ died to purchase our forgiveness of sin. 
sin is only forgiven by the sacrifice of blood. And it is Jesus' blood on the cross that not only redeems us out of that state, but purchases for us, acquires for us the forgiveness of which we will talk about today. So there is nothing in Scripture, especially in your New Testaments, that is more fundamental, more basic, more often repeated than the truth that Jesus Christ did not die as your martyr. He died as your substitute, as your sacrifice. We call that penal substitution. That word penal, of course, comes from the word punishment, penitentiary. And as punishment for our sin, Jesus substituted Himself so that in His blood we have redemption and the forgiveness of our trespasses. From verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He made us precious in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. And that should take us, I believe, down through verse 8, a little further than we're going to make it today. Again, the end of verse 7 is going to be our focus. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So last time we looked at this phrase, in Him we have redemption through His blood. And we talked a great deal about redemption. And we talked about in His blood and we saw this glorious truth of our condition as being enslaved to the sin in which, into which we are born and into which we cast ourselves by our own consistent choices through our life. And we saw the blood of Christ redeem us from that, redeeming us from the entrapment, the enslavement of, of our sin, the guilt of our sin, as well as redeeming us in the future from all the things that make us miserable in this life now, emotionally, mentally, and physically miserable. We are redeemed from this body that's winding down and giving out from these brains and these minds that that have such trouble sometimes remembering things or focusing and concentrating. We are redeemed from our fallen emotions. And all these things feed into this truth of redemption in His blood that we looked at last time. This time we move on to the next phrase, which is a type of a parenthetical phrase. So you noticed in the text, in His blood we have 
or we have redemption in him, we have redemption in his blood, comma, the forgiveness of our trespasses, comma. So this is a type of a parenthetical phrase, an aside, so to speak. And what Paul's doing here is he is offering further explanation or further clarification for what he just said. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Let me further that point by saying the forgiveness of our trespasses. He's for offering to us a little further explanation, a little greater clarity, a little more fleshing out the idea of redemption in his blood. <clears throat> so he's not just repeating himself. The forgiveness of our trespasses is not saying the same thing that he just said. He's, if you will, taking the ball and moving it down the field just a little bit. So we're going to take a look this morning at the forgiveness of our trespasses. And as we look at this concept of forgiveness, this is, again, to say it, it can't be said too many times. This is not only the most foundational and fundamental truth about our life in Christ, but it is probably the most beautiful concept that God has to offer to us in all of our life with Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So we understand forgiveness. We don't need to really spend time understanding that word. But let's take a look quickly at Paul's choice of words that's translated trespass. That's not the normal word that's used for sin. The New Testament, as you probably are aware, has three or four different words that it will use that's translated in different ways to mean our sin, our trespasses, our iniquity, um, our wrongdoing, our transgressions. A number of different words can translate that concept of sin. Here Paul chooses to use a word that's rightly translated trespass, which is to say, a deviation from the path, a, a failing to stay on the path, a wandering away from the path. In this context, the path of righteousness, the path of truth, the path of God. It's a wandering from that. And so in my mind, I picture it like, if you can imagine a, a piece of land that's not yours, but then there's this easement that goes across the land. And as long as you travel along that easement, Everything's fine, but if you leave the easement, then you are no longer on uh, your your property, so to speak, but you are trespassing on another's. And so that's the idea that the word has behind it, the idea of leaving the path and instead wandering onto another path that is the path of trespass, the path of iniquity or the path of wrongdoing or the path of missing the mark, sometimes we might say. So... Paul chooses this word, which admittedly has a whole lot less bite to it, doesn't it? Trespass doesn't sound nearly as bad as iniquity or even sin. So trespass is one of those words that you might say almost sort of softens the blow of what Paul's speaking about. So why does he choose this word trespass? It is not the most common word for sin. In fact, Outside of the Apostle Paul, we only we find the word in the New Testament about two dozen times. But outside of the Apostle Paul, we only find it used twice. And that's by Jesus, of course, in the model prayer. Forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. But nowhere else in the New Testament do we find this word except in the writings of Paul. And Paul likes this word. In particular, he likes this word when he is explaining precise theological concepts. The other occasion that the word shows up with great regularity is in Paul's letter to the Romans, particularly the section of chapter 5, 6, 7. 
In that section, if you're familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans, that is a section of Scripture in which, I'm not here yet, in which Paul is explaining something very detailed and very precise. And he's using this word trespass. In, as we say in Romans chapter 5 on the screen here, the free gift is not like the trespass. For as many died through one's man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That's one of the places throughout that extended section that Paul used this word. So if you notice here, this word trespass, for as many died through one's man, one man's trespass, Paul is putting together two concepts, the concept of right death and trespass. It almost doesn't seem right to us that if somebody trespasses on your property, you shoot him. Doesn't that kind of seem like a, a punishment that doesn't fit the crime? Yet Paul chooses specifically this word, and I think the point that he's getting across to us is this. You need not think of your sin as the most heinous, depraved sin of mankind in order to be deserving of eternal death. In the words of Paul, just the trespass, just the leaving of the path, or to use another word, just the missing of the mark, is enough to cast us into eternal damnation. So the point here to make is we need not be considered just the this most depraved and the worst of sinners in order to stand in such desperate need of the forgiveness of God. Now, this is an important a point to get. In the words of Thomas Watson, who wrote a few centuries ago, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter... Christ will not be sweet. Now, this phrase right here is worthy of your committing to memory because this phrase is enormously helpful. The concept behind it is enormously helpful to help us to see the blessing of forgiveness. Because here's what I want to say to you. No human being, apart from the work of the Spirit, ever sees your own sin as necessarily Heinous. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God, every human being sees their own sin as understandable, justifiable, not really that bad. Sure, I'm not perfect, but that's how every human, apart from the work of the Spirit, sees their own sinfulness as something that is understandable something that is justifiable. And Thomas Watson wisely says to us, until the work of God comes into your heart, until the Spirit of God works in you to show you the deep depravity of your soul, Christ is not going to be sweet. His forgiveness is not going to be precious to you until you see And I'm going to say not see one time, but see on a daily basis until the work of the Spirit works in you daily to teach you again and again, my trespass is a heinous, blasphemous sin against the Maker of the universe. That is the work of the Spirit. And so if you see your sin in that way, praise God, that's the work of His Spirit. But make it your prayer on a daily basis. Lord, show me. Open my eyes to my own depravity. Cause me to see 
the bitterness, cause my own sin to be bitter in my thoughts, bitter in my mouth, so that I will see the redemption of your son, the forgiveness that your son has purchased for me as sweet. Until you see sin in that way, forgiveness will be nothing more to you than a concept. Nothing more than a theological doctrine, a theological concept that's that's nice, nice to know about. We're sure glad that Jesus did that. But until you see your own sin in that way, which is a work of the Spirit for you, you will not see His work on the cross as precious to you. So I think this is why Paul is using this word trespass. We can put it in whatever terms we like. Trespass, missing the mark. But it's all heinous iniquity before the Lord our God, our Maker, whose image we have blasphemed. That's the first thing to see is this word trespass. But then let's also spend just a moment and let's just clarify for ourselves the concept of forgiveness as opposed to the concept of pardon. You know, sometimes we will, we will use the phrase forgive us of our sins. But then don't we also use this phrase pardon our sins or God pardons our sin or God Specifically, Jesus purchased our pardon on the cross. How many times do we sing something like that? So let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves this question. Is the concept of pardoning our sins a New Testament reality? Does the New Testament teach that God pardons our sin? And as you might suspect, the answer to that is no. The word pardon is not found in our New Testament. It is an Old Testament concept. The Old Testament will speak of God pardoning our guilt or pardoning our sin, but the New Testament never uses the word pardon. It will only use the word redeem or the word forgiveness. It will not use the word pardon because pardoning of our sins is not a New Testament concept. Now, this is important to see, but it's also easy to see. Because even the English words tell us of the difference. What's the difference between forgiveness and pardon? We can think of maybe a criminal who has been rightly convicted of committing some crime and the sentence, the the punishment for that crime might be life in prison or 30 years in prison or maybe the death sentence or whatever. And along comes a governor that will pardon the criminal or a president that will pardon the criminal. And what happens? They are not declared to be not guilty. They are declared to have their sentence commuted. The punishment removed. The punishment is what is banished from the person. The person remains the convicted felon or the convicted criminal. Uh, there's a young lady by the name of uh, Claudette Colvin. You may have heard about her in the news. Claudette Colvin was a teenager in 1955. She was 15 years old in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, and she was an African-American. She preceded Rosa Parks by, uh, I think, about nine months in doing the same thing Rosa Parks did, which was refuse to give up her seat on a bus for a white person. So Claudette Colvin refused to give up her seat for a white man on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. She never reached the fame and notoriety of Rosa Parks, but she was convicted of the same crime. She was sentenced and never served any of her sentence. Within the last couple of months, I believe, this past summer, Claudette Colvin, who's an elderly, elderly woman now, has petitioned the court to have her conviction expunged, removed from the court's records. 
So you can clearly see the difference there. She was convicted and sentenced, but never served the sentence. In other words, she was pardoned. But she remained the convicted criminal for all these decades. Now she says, well, I shouldn't be the convicted criminal that I've been, so I wish to now be, if we want to use that theological word, forgiven, which means that the offense itself is removed. And so herein we have one of the glorious truths of the New Testament's teaching to us of life in Christ. God does not just pardon sin. The far richer, the far deeper truth is that God forgives sin. Forgiveness is a removal of the guilt. Forgiveness is a banishment of the guilt. Pardon is just a banishment of the consequence. It's a banishment of the sentence. It's a banishment of the punishment for the sin which you are rightly guilty of. Forgiveness is a removal of that guilt. The guilt, the responsibility of the sin is moved from you to Christ. He becomes responsible for your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He becomes the sin that you are so that you are not just pardoned, you are forgiven and the guilt is banished from you. Even the thought of that guilt is banished from you. So many times the Scriptures teach us about how the thought of our guilt is banished from the mind of God. Take a look with me at some of these passages in Scripture. Hebrews 8, verse 12. I will remember your sin no more. Isaiah 43. I, I am He who blots out your transgression. I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. Now, be clear about this. God forgets nothing. It is not true to say God forgets our sin because God is incapable of losing the memory of something. God does not forget our sin. In fact, you do not want a God who forgets your sin. Think about this for a moment. If God forgets your sin when He forgives you, what might happen? He might remember it again one day. You don't want a God to forget your sin. You want a God who banishes the thought of your sin. And that's what God tells us He does. His memory is not faulty. He doesn't lose the recollection of events. In fact, He retains those. But what He says to us is my forgiveness is so complete and so total that the thought of that guilt is banished from my mind and I remember your sins no more. Look at the completeness. Psalm 103, verse 12. So far He does remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Micah chapter 7, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. Corey Ten Boom used to say that God casts our sins into the depths of the sea and then puts up a no fishing sign. He casts them into the depths of the sea. Acts 3, He blots them out. 1 John 1 verse 9 He cleanses us from all our iniquity and all of our unrighteousness. The point here to make is that forgiveness is so much sweeter than simple pardon or overlooking of our sins or saying that the punishment is banished or remitted. Instead, God remits the blemish itself, the sin itself, 
the responsibility of that sin itself is moved from, from us unto Jesus. The righteousness of God's holy law ceases to be hostile to us and God in His mind. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is God changing His mind towards us. Repentance is our changing of our own mind towards, towards ourself and our sins. Forgiveness is God's changing His mind toward us. It's God saying, I banish from my mind the guilt that is rightly yours. I have taken that guilt, I have put it on my son, and I have punished it to the fullest extent of the righteousness of my law, and so I therefore banish it from my thoughts in relation to you. God has changed His mind toward us and there is a certain resentment that is gone. You know, that's what forgiveness between people is all about, isn't it? Forgiveness between people is all about this maybe a a feeling of resentment that we put away. There is a wrongdoing, there is a sin between friends or between spouses and there is this certain feeling of resentment and forgiveness is a putting away of that resentment. In a sense, that's also God's forgiveness of us. It's His putting away of His righteous resentment toward the sinner who has declared war upon Him and upon His image. And God's rightful resentment is then put away. 